Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and, and welcome to Call to Action The go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Alex Jenkins. As the managing partner at Contagious, Alex possesses a wealth of expertise in the field, with a bonce bursting with industry knowledge that encompasses a myriad of past campaigns, current narratives and future predictions. Part editorial, part consultancy, part research, Contagious believes in the best version of our industry, one where creativity wins. Alex says, you will not find a single colleague, client, manager or recruiter who's going to look around themselves and say, You know what we need around here? More people who know less. No more. Welcome to the show, Alex. Well, thanks very much for having me. Right, seven quickfires, Alex. Book or Kindle? Uh, Kindle. Uh, Yeah, Kindle, 100%. Batman or Zorro? Batman. Nice. Golden Eye or Super Mario Kart? Gosh. I'm going to go Golden Eye for the retro, uh, retro appeal of it. Nice. Um, good strategy, bad strategy, or invisible ink? Ooh, come on, man, you have done your research there. I will... I, I know that a lot of your guests have already recommended good strategy, bad strategy. I'm going to go invisible ink. It is the most recommended book, actually. Beth did a count recently. Good stuff. Uh, something that happens or something you create? Um, something you create. Nice, these are too easy. Moldy Whopper or Dream Crazy? Oh, I will go. I'm going to go dream crazy because I can't bear the backlash of saying Moldy Whopper. <laughs> <laughs> I simply can't, can't put the energy into defending again and again. Okay, finally, this is from the most contagious things of 2022 playing Wordle or listening to Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. Ah, let's go, Kate Bush. What a, what a year to come back. What a year. What a year. Amazing. Listen, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. We always start the show by asking guests about their career, uh, specifically their path to where they are now, because we find that it's often, well, it's rarely a linear one. In the research, I actually picked a line from an interview you've given previously where you actually said a linear path makes you similar to everyone else. So I'm expecting you had a wiggly way in. Yeah. Yeah. I like to joke that I had, that there's two definitions of the word career. And uh, and mine was very much the second kind of wiggling all over the place. So, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of how I got to where I am, it really was quite a, quite a strange journey in some way. I guess writing was always in some way at the centre of it. I, I did an uh, English literature degree, and when I graduated, uh, I got a job as a local business journalist, which was kind of interesting it was everything from like local pub openings to like one day and then you go and interview the company that made guidance systems for like missiles and space shuttles the next then i did an awful lot of like temping work i think like data entry stuff weirdly may have influenced my life i get if i'm totally honest i get a little bit hazy on the order of my career because i did a lot of parallel track stuff 
So I did that. I did work in film production for a little bit. Um, worked on a film by Lynn Ramsey called Northern Cowler that I think did quite well at Cannes. The critics loved it. No one else seemed to like that. Off in the way. And then like basically did a whole bunch of different stuff. Very <laughs> very shortcut this. And more recently, um, ended up in the knowledge spam to the IPA. And from there, uh, joined Contagious about 13 years ago. Well, so that was kind of like the, the day-to-day things they paid me for. But then I sort of had this kind of parallel track evening thing where I was also doing a bunch of, I guess you'd call them kind of creative projects. So I, was, I played in bands a lot. Um, we used to play around London, record an album that weirdly, like in 2005, it made the critics' choice in like the Billboard roundup of like Billboard magazine's roundup of the year. They were. Above the Rolling Stones, could not get uh, any money out of that whatsoever. Um, I wrote a book, I wrote a kind of a comedy choose your adventure book, uh, which also sank without trace due to Girls Allowed taking our marketing budget. <laughs> True story. And then, like, yeah, a bunch of other like kind of random stuff, like random like parody Twitter accounts uh, and things like that. So, it, I suppose like in in terms of like kind of the office day job, there was kind of getting paid for stuff, and then there was doing like a lot of creative stuff, largely kind of I guess in some way or other kind of involving writing or just making stuff. And the contagious kind of brought it all together in writing about creativity and you know making magazines and things like that. So pretty non-linear. And I have there there is a chunk of my there's a chunk of my career I've kind of skipped out as well. Because it's uh, it's a little bit of a black hole. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so going back to being maybe a, like a well, I suppose a young adult, but even even prior to that, was music something that you got into early? Was creativity broadly something that was there was a pattern forming? So as in, what did you what did you want to be when you were, you know, looking into careers and exploring opportunities at college or university or whatever that might look like? If I'm totally honest, I don't remember looking into it. Yeah, <laughs> like with any actual intent at all. I really liked music. I got into music at a very, very early age. I've like you know played around in bands you know, since I was a teenager. Um, like, and I used to love like being in recording studios, just like the most fun place to be. But also loved writing. I'm, like, you know, huge fan of reading. Um, again, from very early age, I had you know I've still got like letters that I wrote. You know, re- retur- I had letters from people like Roald Dahl and Douglas Adams. I'd write to them and they'd just reply. I'm sure it's there were. some you know, secretary kind of knocking it off. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, so I was always interested in, in that sort of stuff. I kind of got to the end of university and having an English degree kind of qualifies you to kind of do nothing in a way. And, and it was really just like that kind of wily coyote running off the edge of a cliff. It's like, you know, you've been on the, the tram lines of education. And then it came to a halt. And it's like, huh, I wonder what happens next. And I wonder who's going to, so, oh, no one's going to sort it out for me. Right. Okay. And ended up, as you can kind of tell from my career history, kind of pinging around a little bit until I found something that that felt right for me. I love um, I love that term coming off the tram lines of education because I think lots of people, including myself, can um, can relate to that. Yeah, because everything else is is exactly that, right? It's it's a path that you kind of follow and you almost you almost do so unconsciously until a point. Yeah, I was asked to give some advice to someone recently who had basically done an English degree. It was like, what the hell happens next? And it was, my advice was pretty, like, probably pretty useless, to be honest. But I was like, look, it's very hard to know precisely what you want, unless you actually, and this guy clearly did not know precisely what he wanted. But I was like, you, you kind of need to move in a general direction. So it's like, if you if you know you want to go on holiday, you might broadly want to go south. And you don't know that you necessarily want to go to Madrid or Rome, but start heading south. So if you know you kind of want to work in the media, head towards that. Or if you know you want to work broadly in something. 
and then kind of refine as you get nearer. Um, and I kind of wish someone had told me that at the time. <laughs> but you're right about that 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 quote of you, as I, I mentioned before you gave your answer about a linear path makes you similar. I think that it's only really via recording these episodes I, I, I've come to the realization that the the most kind of interesting, often the most successful, but you know perhaps not always, people tend to have taken a very scenic route. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember speaking to someone that had um, was making games, making video games, uh, but in an advertising context. And they're going, yeah, it's like, it's really weird. Like, you know, we used to do this very linear kind of like campaign, you know, sort of narrative stuff. And now we've got to make this gaming thing. And as you was describing, it was like, yeah, that's exactly how I wrote a Choose Your Own Adventure book. It's literally the same thing. So it was weirdly like able to be empathetic about something. It, there was very much outside the work sphere that suddenly became inside it. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you you can't you can't make a throwaway comment like "Girls Aloud took your budget" without <laughs> unpacking it a little. By the way, okay, so this was I think the book came out in two thousand and eight. So it was it, you know peak financial crisis, and so it's me and a very funny guy co-wrote this book, a guy called Steve Morrison, and we were just a pair of nobodies who had this idea for a choose your own adventure book. Um, you don't remember like the old fighting fantasy books. It was kind of like that, but, and the idea was you were just a data entry temp working in an office and the object of the quest was you had to get your timesheet signed, but everyone that you worked with were fantastical creatures. So it was like gorgons and minotaurs and stuff like this. Um, and so it, it was, uh, and we, ended, we got picked up by, uh, Transworld, which was Terry Pratchett's, uh, sort of publishing house. Nice. And yeah, I thought I'd drop that in because, you know, as if I was any. Yeah, I love Terry. As if I was anywhere near as good as him. Nowhere near as good as him. (laughs) But, and then obviously the financial crisis happened and the marketing department clearly thought we are not going to take a punt on these two chances. So put all the money into the Girls Allowed um, book that was coming out. So two complete unknowns um, with no existing audience kind of got their marketing cut from under them. And still a little bit salty about it, if I'm totally honest. I would be. I would be too. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk about Contagious then. So you've been a Contagious for a while now. Your your role has evolved presumably quite significantly in that time. What's what's directed that that evolution? Um, I mean, in terms of the role, it, it kind of yes and no because I, I joined as a, a writer analyst, and a lot of what we do at Contagious is just the analysis of creativity and strategy, um, and then kind of worked up. You know, through so being um, the digital editor, then took on the editing as well as the digital stuff, the magazine as well, became the editorial director. Um, and now also look after sort of content for things like our events in addition to the other stuff. So it's kind of just kind of taking on more and more in a way. But, I, you know, I guess like anyone, it sort of it means I'm responsible for it, but I don't actually do it <laughs> as much as I used to. You know I mean? um, but what I love about what we do at Contagious is it's, it's always kind of looking at what's what's changing, what's new, um, what does it mean for brands, what it means for advertisers. And so the nature of what we look at is changing. So it, it really never feels like a static job because there is always something something new coming on, something new to investigate. You know, so it's, you know, whether, you know, a couple of years back kind of, there, there was a big sense of, you know, the notions of masculinity are changing. So it's really looking at quite, you know, kind of, consumer attitudinal stuff and then obviously the more you know being contagious looking at the tech stuff everything from you know i was there like the rise of facebook you know facebook gaming all that stuff through to you know sort of vr 
AR, AI, so all the tech stuff uh, as well. So kind of whatever is you know, sort of changing out there in the world, whether it's you know, sustainability, climate crisis, it, it comes into our remit because it's change. And that is just, for me, is just fascinating. As someone who's just curious about what's going on in the world. Yeah, it's funny. I remember talking to Bob Hoffman about three, maybe even close to four years ago, one of our early episodes, and we were talking about how the industry, I believe increasingly so, but maybe I'm just, maybe that's a, an ignorant take on it, but that increasingly the lines between our industry and the wider sense of, I suppose, culture globally seems to be merging, whether that's ad tech, whether it's, say, like Facebook, as you mentioned there, and the kind of surveillance technology, which which drives a lot of the commercial sides of their business, or whether in fact it's something more recent like AI. So, um, from an editorial perspective, it is very interesting, and I suppose you are holding up a mirror to that. So it must be quite a quite a big mirror. Yeah, it is, and I think I mean I'm, I don't know if maybe your your listeners will will write in and tell us this. I sometimes my my paranoia is that people think that it contagious. Is obsessed with and champions the kind of the the shiny new crap for a better term, and it, and it's really it's not that it's more that you know, we want to look at something and kind of triage it and go, is this useless? Is it a distraction? Or actually, is it is it a new thing? You know, so you know you wouldn't want to have dismissed. And this is a dumb example, but something as big as mobile, it's like ah, oh, it's a it's a new thing. Should we have you know? Um, should we probably be dismissing things like NFTs and what have you? It's like, well, probably. But we still sort of, you know, serve as that kind of triaging function to go look and go, look, we will go off, we'll do the research, we'll look at it. And, you know, increasingly, I think, as a lot of that kind of, especially the tech stuff, does impact on people and their wider lives, that it, it, it yeah, it's, it, it does come more into our industry. Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it that it's more of a triage uh, process. And I, and I guess that's where naturally the consultative side to contagious kind of comes into play how is, is it easy to to remain objective with your analysis and your conclusions around uh, what's happening whether it's whether it's technology or whatever it might be because you wrote in last year's most contagious report uh, which which made me laugh actually based on the data set of literally just my opinion <laughs> i believe this year has seen a nearly complete lack of visually iconic work I think it's really important that we that that caveat needs to be applied to a lot of the the kind of discourse in our industry. Is that a tough line to find, though, to be able to comment subjectively and objectively, given the implications of what you might be saying? Uh, I think I mean we have a few like the kind of checks and balances. I guess the process and the way we work at Contagious is it's it's incredibly collaborative. Um, so you'll it's very rare you'll either read something or you'll see something on stage at an event. That hasn't actually had the input of a lot of people on it. So you get that kind of look, I think this. And someone will go, yeah, but what about consider it from this angle? And it's it's you one of the skills you pick up at contagious is you learn to see things from a lot of different angles. So you know, what I kind of talk about kind of walking around a problem until you kind of see it from all the angles. And it helps to have other people doing that. So that kind of keeps you objective to a degree. But there there is also just an element of You've got to have a sense of, I believe it, but I've got to be able to back it up. If we think something is you know, good or worth paying attention to, you have to justify it. You can't just make a sweeping statement like, you know, NFTs are the future or, you know, purpose is dead. It's like, 
I'm not saying you're right or wrong, but if you can't prove it, then you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dismiss it entirely. Uh, I think it's the, the sort of Christopher Hitchens has a quote. Has it? No, it's not a quote. Christopher Hitchens has a line about anything that's sort of asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence, and it's that kind of mindset. Nice. Yeah. No, that's a very healthy one to take. And and what do you currently think of the advertising industry? So. If we were to triage it, even if that's a very crude, crude thing to ask you to do, what is there perhaps that we can be excited about? I'm always mindful when I ask questions around this topic, Alex, that especially when I queue it up as, you know, the state of creativity, for example, it's all too easy to be, you know, negative and, and at the moment I think people need a bit of um, need to be lifted slightly. Certainly moods need to be lifted within the industry. What do you think about the current state of creativity in the industry and, and what can we be positive about? Um, okay, I'm going to give you a two-part answer because the first part is a bit negative and then I'll do the positive bit if that's right. Because I think, and, and I'm going to kind of blow it out slightly like wider than the ad industry. Because I think if you look at creativity in general, I think we're in a weird place. So, um, for example, I was reading, uh, there's a guy who's, he's a musician who's done an, an analysis of the Billboard Hot 100. Um, and he said, look, pop music is far less complex than it used to be. The chord progressions are more basic. The melodies are more generic. Overall, music is less creative than it used to be. Um, and then you look into somewhere like Hollywood and, you know, and there's just more sequels. There's more franchises. I saw a stat the other day that like in 1981, 16% of the most popular new releases were sequels. By 2021, 80% were sequels. You know, and that's not creativity, that's repetition. You know, a lot of it, like you look at like the Marvel films, the Star Wars universe, like the JK Rowling, the Wizarding World, like all these franchises that just regularly roll out, you know, the creativity happened decades ago. They're just kind of, you know, applying variations on it. Um and Richard Link, you know, the the film director Richard Linklater was interviewed recently, he said something that um I wrote, he said a little bit of a long quote, but I wrote it down because it was so interesting. He said, with a changing culture and changing technology, it's hard to see cinema slipping back into the prominence it weren't held. Um, you know, I think we could feel it coming on when they started calling films content. But that's what happens when you let take tech people take over your industry. Yeah. Now, that sounds pretty familiar to me. Mm, it really does. Um, and and I think, right, so, then, so let, let me conclude the first part of my you know, negative answer, which is I think we are seeing a lot of that kind of the, the tech people taking over the industry. Um, not, I mean, that's an overstatement, um, but there's a lot of that. And it's that sense of, you know, it, this is not creativity. This is doing nothing wrong, but not necessarily doing anything right. Okay. And I think that there is a bit of that going on. Okay? And I think, now, now let's move into the slightly sunnier stuff. Okay. I think post-COVID, um, I mean, looking at, so, and as well, a little bit of context. So, our remit at Contagious to look at like the output of the global ad industry, right? So we look at, I don't care what country it's from, we will look at absolutely everything. But all we're concerned about is is the best. And I think post-COVID last year, the UK and Europe was probably one of the poorest years, I think. I, and that's you know, the quote you, uh, you you sort of mentioned earlier was, was, was my view on that, was I just don't remember being so poor. I think it's actually significantly better this year. I think the USA is having a poor year this year, but um, but I, I actually think people are beginning to get their mojo back. 
a little bit. Um, we had this kind of came out of a little bit of like a creativity recession. Um, but I think people are kind of pulling their bootstraps up. And uh, is that a phrase? Yeah, why not? Pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. People are getting their shit together. There we go. You asked for, yes, you asked for a crude answer. That's the crude answer. Um, and yeah, and, and we're seeing we're seeing some some interesting stuff. I think in, people using technology in fun and interesting ways, and people just making ads that are fun. And like, dear God, we missed that for so long. I, without any intention whatsoever, I find myself when we talk about creativity and ads being fun, I can't help but think of some of the early. Uh, Barclay card ads that that Paul Feldwick did with Rowan Atkinson and and similar, similar similarly daft and silly, but but you know effortlessly humorous and fame driving campaigns of of the past. And your first part of your answer talking about tech people taking over creativity, albeit you kind of said it maybe wasn't you know quite as significant or absolute as that. But I but I think it, I think it kind of is in a way. And I think it is it's 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 kind of passively happening too as technology over kind of takes over so many areas of our life. And I suppose maybe this could be a crowbar, but maybe that is a nod back to that point I was saying earlier, where the industry is kind of bleeding into all aspects of our life. And it's I find it harder to separate the two when it comes to reliance on technology. I'm not quite sure what my question there is, Alex. It's more a it's more a summary of what you just said. I more of a comment than a question. Yeah, no, but I agree. Yeah. I do agree. I think you're, I think you're right on that. The pervasive nature of technology in people's lives, and because advertising and marketing is just concerned with people at the end of the day, it's you know, trying to get their attention and influence them. And if technology is big in their lives and it's how they are spending a lot of their time, then it's a route that we need to. You know, we can't just turn our back on it and go, "Well, wasn't like that in Burnback's day." It's interesting that stat around um, uh, film movie sequels too, because it, it almost it almost contrasts with a lot of the I would suggest the right advice that's given around ad- adverts not wearing out, in as much as actually people change too frequently in Adland. Yes, um, you mentioned creative recession there. I know you also like to talk about the kind of anti-creative forces at play. Is that easy to summarise what they are? Yeah, I think you know, as an industry, we really like to celebrate creativity, which is good and we should. But I think a more practical thing to do is you know, look at what stops us from getting great creativity. And I think you know, to summarise, I guess, anti-creative forces, there's, there's quite a few of them. But I think a really key fundamental one is, you know, by definition, creativity is something that is new and it's novel, which makes it risky. And... Nearly every business you'll find is highly risk averse, right? And you know they, they don't want to take risks. Um, if you look at the way we motivate people and we manage people, it's not based on the risks they took. It's based on you know I'll set you KPIs. These are your objectives for the year, and we'll review them at your appraisal. And if you turn up and go, I completely did a ninety degree tangent to do something else, people really don't like that. You know um, your CFO tends to get very very nervous um, around around anything to do with risk rather notably. And there's a lot of, you know, internal kind of, you know, mental biases. People are, you know, there's a fascinating study that we, we quote a lot at Contagious. It came out of Cornell University. But it said that even when people say they want creativity and they think that they want creativity, actually they reject it. And so a lot of anti-creative forces are to do with, you know, kind of risk aversion one way or another. And then you look at, and that's always been the case. You know, I think if, you know, if you're an agency, an ad agency, you're built around creativity. But if you're on the brand side, 
you know, a lot of what you do is not to do with creativity. It's kind of like one bit of your job and you have this real kind of, you know, gear crunching kind of gear shift change to go from, you know, kind of you know, things like, you know, distribution, you know, the product placement, all that sort of stuff. And then the creative bit. Um, and you can see why people, you know, struggle sometimes with that. And then like to bring it into this year, you, you throw in things like, you know, look at AB InBev, what happened with, you know, Dylan Mulvaney. I think they lost, was it 27 billion in their market value? And things like the risk aversion just goes up. So I think there is a rational that, you know, you can quote, you know, Les Burnett and Peter Field and all the stuff at me, and I get it. Rationally, I get it. But it's, I think this kind of, in the same way, I rationally know I should eat more salad and go for a run. But do I do it? The fuck I do. <laughs> and, you know, I think that is the challenge. It's, it's knowing that rationally you want it, but just the, the mindset and the process and the way your company runs and kind of almost the muscle memory of the company, if you try and pull away from that, snaps you back into doing the logical, the rational. And I think it's here exacerbated by tech, where it's like, well, now look at all the data we've got. And the data will, it won't tell us what to do. And it, to my point earlier, it's like, I always feel like data will frequently, I don't want to overstate this, but frequently it will tell you the thing to do that is not wrong. But it won't always tell you, to do, tell you what to do that is actually right. It won't do the, the breakout thing. Nice. So how, how, do we, how do we or how do you metaphorically get people in the business to eat more salad and go jogging? <laughs> um, well, I, I don't want to turn this into a plug for our business, but we do have an entire, like that's it, almost entirely what our advisory department does is exactly that. Um, so if it's, it's quite a, um, not standardized, what's the word I want? It's quite a methodical process um, where, first of all, we we convince, uh, we you know, pull out all the evidence. You know, salad is good for you, creativity works. Um, we'll get you to recognize what good creativity looks like, help you evaluate. So we do so we do a lot of work with people creating tools to help them you know, talk about and evaluate something as uh, subjective as creativity in an objective way. Because, you know, Charles, Charles, I'm sure you're aware of this. A lot of talk can devolve into, you know, I like it or I don't like it. And it's just like, I don't care whether you like it or not. Like, do you think it will work? And what do we mean by work? Will it, you know, will it get attention? Will it actually, you know, will it create the memory structures that we need to make? Will it stand out, you know, be distinct from, you know, all the other, you know, kind of generic stuff in our category? Um, and then, you know, we, you know, we can help train people to brief their agencies better, you know, evaluate the ideas that come back, all that sort of stuff. Um, like the first step is always you've got to recognize, first of all, why creativity is important. Um, and then kind of recognize your own biases. Um, I was talking to a marketer from the Middle East recently who was saying that, you know, they always struggle to get their ideas kind of you know, sold in to the, uh, the CEO. And so the way they found it, but what they found out was this guy likes to be seen as a bit of a maverick. So they said they present two pretty dull ideas and go, and then they'd say, and but then there's a maverick idea, and that and the guy was like, yes, love it. And it was it was changing the terminology between well, here's something that's risky because I was like, oh, I don't know about risk, uh, you know, but if you change the terminology to be, you know, and, and the maverick thing is maybe works for one guy, but if you change the terminology to like. But here's something that I, th I believe genuinely will get attention. This is, I think we will stand out against our competitors. 
all of a sudden it doesn't seem risky. It seems like, well, that's correct. That's exactly what we want to do. And so some of it is literally just reframing the language we use around, around this stuff. Ryan Warman and I gave a talk a few years ago about why we felt it was absurd to talk about bravery when we talk about creativity, because actually the risky thing to do is to do the same as all of your competitors, right? So I think the semantics and terminology point you make is exactly right and it's bang on. And I've, and I've, I've noticed it increasingly, certainly in the last few years, um, and we should nod to Les, Les Burnett and Peter Field, as you say, and also Ehrenberg Bass Institute, LinkedIn B2B. I mean, there's so many people who are doing significant work to help us have those conversations and use the right terminology but even something as seemingly trivial as rebranding brand awareness to future sales for example just makes the conversation feel more significant to people who aren't marketers in a department and who have you know a critical say in in, in the matter it's it's a funny one i was because we frequently give talks um you know it contains where we're, we're, we're just we're showing what we think is some of the best work and some of the interesting trends and blah blah, and probably the most frequently asked question over the years. Do this. Someone comes up and says, "That was amazing. I loved all that work you you, know, you showed. How do I convince my boss to do more work like that?" And you just want to say, "You are literally in the business of persuasion. <laughs> like, persuade people or get a different job. But if you can't persuade the guy you work with to do it." How are you going to persuade you know, some rando on the street to even buy your product? You know, you know, kind of start at home. Kind yeah, of exactly. But, that. Uh, but I think it's it is about. I think you're right. There's a lot to do with, you know, the, uh, the terminology we use. Um, Time, weather, and- Today's podcast is sponsored by No One. Whether you need research, brand, or strategy, No One brings you absolutely nothing. With simple templates and drag and drop tools, you can have a great looking nothing in minutes. If you have a real marketing challenge you'd like to chat about, though, just email giles at gasp.agency and use the offer code giles to get 10% off nothing. Brought to you by no one. Time, weather, and... Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's great points made there. I'm slightly mindful of time because we've just got over half an hour. The I want to talk about the event you have in December, your most contagious event. Can you tell everyone what the day's about and why they should attend because it's uh, it's an opportunity to celebrate the year that has been right exactly so it's uh, 7th of december in london um and it is what we believe to be the some of the best campaigns uh and the brands uh, of the year and some of what we think some of the more interesting trends that people should uh, be on top of for the year ahead so we the way we choose to so we're not really like a lot of other events we don't pick speakers um in fact, no, no one can submit to, you know, no one can apply to speak at all. We just change work, basically. So we've got uh, what we think is an absolutely insanely good lineup. Here comes the hard sell. It's an insanely good lineup this year. Like if you name like one brand, like above anyone else, this tower head and shoulders over this year, it's probably Barbie, right? We have got um, Lisa McKnight, it's Mattel's EVP and chief brand officer is going to talk about the Barbie story and how they pulled off what they did this year. We've got the McDonald's team talking about Razor Archers. Uh, bo, bo. That was surprisingly good. Thanks very much. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I hope we don't get uh, sued for copyright on that one. Um, we have got uh, a guy called uh, Mike Dubrick, who's Rethink in Toronto. So he is from the Rethink is the agency that's uh, been doing all the amazing work for Heinz Ketchup. 
in North America, um, which is then not, I mean, they, those are the guys that really kicked it off a couple of years ago and it's now spreading out to other markets and other agencies. Uh, we've got the team from Dove uh, talking about their cost of beauty campaign, which is all about you know, the impact of social media uh, and what it's doing to our, to our daughters. Um, and then a really fascinating campaign, we've got um, the guys from MasterCard talking about a campaign um, they, call, they ran called Where to Settle, which I don't know if it's particularly widely known in the UK, but it's, it was basically them, it was uh, an online service, I think it was an app actually, called Where to Settle, which they created to help uh, Ukrainian refugees who were coming into Poland. And they were trying to find, you know, <clears throat> they were, they were, most of them were trying to head to Warsaw to find you know, homes and places to work. But it turns out there was many more opportunities for them in smaller towns. And the Where to Settle app was just helping them find um, you know, sort of homes and, and jobs. And apparently of about the one and a half million refugees settled in Poland um, after leaving the war, 20% of them used this MasterCard app, um, which is so it's you know, great. So I know there's a lot of people like, oh, that sounds a bit purposely to me. But you know, MasterCard is all about financial inclusion. Um, it was all about getting people you know, set up and finding jobs. Um, and I think it was absolutely, it was one of those moments where, yes, it is purposely and it's doing good in the world, but I think it was so clearly aligned to what MasterCard stands for as a brand um, and, you know, and, and their business. But I think it was absolutely, uh, absolutely brilliant. So, um, so yes, yeah, so those, those, sorry, that, I went on a bit about MasterCard, but I mean, no, to, to be honest, I'm glad you did because actually, and I need to articulate this in a way that doesn't sound like I'm trying to challenge you or say anything unfair. So my point on the brands you've just given, and I'll take it back a step. I saw a wonderful response to someone, I think probably on Twitter or X or whatever we're meant to call that wonderful bin fire these days. Um, and it was someone who just made an offhand comment like, I wish my business had a logo like Nike's. And someone, presumably a brand marketer said, all you need is a simple icon, about 30 billion pounds worth of advertising in about 70 years, yeah. um, which was which I absolutely ad adored because I think the significance of these big brands is often missed and, and, and really a lot behind that brand's success is historic, right? It's not necessarily the year that has just been. So my question around the brands which who are at most contagious is is there is there any room for smaller, lesser known brands, perhaps? And I don't ask that to say we shouldn't celebrate Barbie and we shouldn't celebrate McDonald's raise your arches and I'm a massive fan of the Fiat ads. But my wonder my I'm wondering when I think about the context that I work in, which is typically smaller, often B to B brands how much can really be taught to that level of marketer yeah sure is that a fair question no that's totally fair and actually we do like this year in some ways is a little bit of an anomaly in terms of the lineup because the lineup are like it's a hundred percent you know these big global brands um and in previous years we've had a number of uh, much smaller brands i mean if i'm totally honest lifting the lid up on how the machine works a little bit you know it's people don't really buy tickets to see a brand they've never heard of, right? So that so there is a little bit. So let, let's let's throw it into the, an analogy in the music world. Like if you go to Glastonbury, it will be um, the headliner that kind of sells the ticket. But when you come away, it might be some act you've never heard of that was the best thing on the day. Um, and a recent example from I can't remember which year it was actually. I'm trying to, when COVID 
really did a number on my sense of time. Oh, same. I think same. it might have been 2019. Um, I think it was 2019. Uh, a Spanish liqueur brand called Ruba Vieja came along. Um, and no one in, like, I don't, I doubt any single person in that audience had heard of these guys. And literally by the end of their talk, like people absolutely like crying, people shaking their hands afterwards because they ran this uh, amazing campaign, which was, it wasn't like a, a feel good campaign. It was all around uh, bringing people together around kind of Christmas time. And they'd, they'd done this uh, campaign, which you basically went on a website and you put in like, you know, a, like some details about you and some details about a relative or a friend. And it worked out how many times you would see each other before you died. So it was like, wow. and it wasn't just like, oh, you've got X number of years. It was like, based on the number of interactions, you know, people on average have with a friend or, you know, a parent or whatever, you will see this person like, you know, maybe three times in the next five years or next 10 years, whatever. And so, and, it, and then they play this very emotional TV ad off the back of it. Um, and it was incredible. And, and sales went absolutely through the roof. It wasn't just a, you know, a, a real, you know, warm and fuzzy kind of job. Hugely effective campaign. I said, no one in the room had heard about uh, heard about this thing. Um, so we do have room for those guys. And we actually, we do like to champion um, that. And in fact, on the day, the so these are the brands they're speaking, but the Contagious team are also up. And they will be pitching a lot of their kind of lesser known um, sort of campaigns for deliberately from around the world. You know, so you'll get stuff from you know, sort of Latin America or Asia that if you're in the UK or Europe, you probably will just n never have seen. And so we'll be there doing that um you know, it's kind of you're showing up the inspiration then then a bit of the analysis of what you can learn from it as well nice that's a great answer i'm sold yeah good i think the glass and i think your glass and brie analogy is, is is bang on makes a lot of sense yeah well it, it is true it's like you know people think they want to come and hear one thing but i when we look at like the audience feedback it tends to be you know the small thing that's you know happened in some suburb of paris that they never heard about it was like that thing was amazing. You know, I, I, that's, it's given me so many ideas. I'm going to go back and I want to do exactly that. Excellent. I'm going to move to listener questions now, Alex. Yeah. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So Simon asks, you talk about knowledge being a launch pad. What is a key area our industry needs to acquire more knowledge in to make the industry better as a whole? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna see if I can answer that in two parts, because my first answer, the thing that immediately sprung to mind was kind of dodging the question, if I'm honest, which was, <laughs> I know, because I think that, I genuinely think that like a really broad knowledge helps, like Masswit. It's that, I'm, like a number of people have said this over the years, this, this notion of, you know, kind of the more ideas you have in your head, the more things you know that you can connect together, the better your creative, the better the ideas you have. And so the ability to go, huh, I was you know reading a thing about X over here and weirdly applies to Y over here, or it gives us a fresh perspective on that um, is interesting. I know you we sort of mentioned earlier you know, the book Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Remelt. Um, I interviewed him last year. And basically asked him like a similar question, um, you know, about sort of case studies and learning. He said, actually, the best thing you can do is learn from outside your industry. It's like, because again, it's, I know we've said this before already, but if you just look at your competitors, all you'll do is keep up. You'll never get ahead. You need to kind of look at things from outside. So, right. So that's part one. I would like, look at anything, look at everything. 
I suspect, looking at the way the wind is blowing, um, a healthy understanding and like a, a, a real understanding of technology, even if you don't use it, I think just like it'll it'll do you a lot of favors because you will just be able to get a, a clearer sense of the direction of travel because I think that the main thing that is going to change the industry and probably change consumer behavior is probably technology. <clears throat> and if you're one of those people who's just like, oh yeah, but AI could never have come up with a slogan like, you know, beans means hinds, like, yeah, and just dismiss it. You, you'll, you'll never learn, right? You'll never learn. And I think yeah, it's, it's, it's a rather dumb analogy. Um, to, I don't want to hear those kind of arguments anyway. But I suspect even if you are a dismissive person, you know, better to know the tune that the devil is playing kind of thing um, would be my suggestion there. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a funny uh, balance between, I suppose, a natural cynicism, which I think people, it might be unfair to say this, I think people naturally become more cynical with age. Um, apologies if you're offended by that, but it obviously uh, <laughs> therefore means I'm increasingly cynical. But I also think the, 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 the kind of truth that marketers are all part magpie equally is uh, leads us to shiny and new. And, and and just having that freedom to explore is is the only way you're going to learn, as you say. Your 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 point on broad knowledge is really interesting as well, actually. And it reminded me of a point. It was I'm sure it was Richard Huntington when he was on the pod a couple of years ago. He I believe, and it's come up in other guises as well, with mostly strategists, I think, um, which is the practice of buying a completely random magazine when you're about to get on the train. Um, which I've always I've always enjoyed the idea of that and I've done it a couple of times. Yeah, I love that. Question two then is from Lauren. Lauren asks, what opportunities are you seeing for brands and agencies heading into the fast approaching 2024? Broadly being on the side of people is probably, um, you know, is always going to do you well, I think. You know, and we've seen, um, you know, a lot, a lot of brands kind of, you know, for want of a better term, dicking people around, uh, shall we say, post, um, you know, you've, you've just gone through COVID, r- pretty rough time. But then you get hit by a cost of living crisis and you see things like sort of shrinkflation happening, you know, same price, you're getting less of your money. Um, we saw a really interesting, it's not even a campaign, it's a bit of marketing from uh, the French supermarket Carrefour, um, where they were labeling products on their shelves they labeled it hashtag shrinkflation. If it was, you know, um, you know, it's the same product, but you're getting less of it. You know, so it's like it's paying the same price, but there's 15% less. With the implication being, so if you are, you know, let's say there's tins of baked beans. I'm not naming any names. There's three, you know, you know, household name brands. Um, <laughs> there's basically one, right? But let's say there's three, and they were labeled shrink shrinkflation. But then there's the Carrefour brand, and it's not. So they're just basically saying, like, you know, all these other brands, you know, are taking you for a fool. They are re- they are turning the, the you know, twisting the knife, you know, kind of thing. But Carrefour aren't. So shop at Carrefour. You know, we are. You know, we will point out these things, and we will, um, you know, we'll 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 tell you that you know, we're not doing it, but we'll tell you who is doing. It. Amazing. So that, yeah, that. I mean, just a really like simple, just like labeling thing happening on the shelves. Um, that is probably if you are. I don't want to go down an AI rabbit hole, if I'm totally honest, but I suspect there is a massive opportunity for brands in that area on the client side and at 
terrible threat for agencies in that area. Um, so, you know, I think you know, the whole thing about, you know, faster, cheaper, better, um, you know, kind of pick two. I mean, my belief generally is that like AI is, is just going to be so much faster and so much cheaper and so much that's, you know, so much of the output of Adland, you know, conforms to Sturgeon's law. Just, you know, the advertising industry is the poster child for Sturgeon's law. 90% of everything is crap. So if you can just do it faster and cheaper, yeah, I, I don't think people care too much about the quality. And I think that's a terrible risk for agencies. Um, and, you know, I've already seen some, you know, agency holding groups like demoing their in-house tech, where it's like, and they even said, you know, this used to take us a year, it now takes a couple of hours to achieve the same thing. Everything from insights into our audience, the media planning, creative ideas, like you know, strategy ideas, all this stuff. Doing it in a couple of hours. And you know, don't try and tell me that's not going to whip jobs out of the economy, because I just don't believe it. Yeah, I mean, especially in a world where, or an industry where we're commoditizing creativity into content yeah it's almost inevitable right faster and cheaper is compelling enough so sorry let me try off right this is super depressing let me try and flip this <laughs> perform the greatest trick and flip that negative into a positive so um I, I believe like that is the way the wind is blowing that is the direction of travel so as a as an individual at an agency this is the person who's asked this question i would look to be doing all i could to be useful and original and doing something unique that could not get, um, you know, <laughs> eaten by chat GPT in a matter of months. Yeah. Give it a few years, but yeah. <laughs> I like, I love being on the side of people. I, it's reminded me again, this is, um, not particularly helpful actually to share, but I'm going to share it anyway, because I love the story. There is a, uh, a bus, a bus driver's strike happening currently in Japan. And instead of just not turning up, the bus drivers are still honouring their routes and taking their passengers from, from A to B. They're just not collecting fares. That is amazing. See, I love Which that. Which is wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Amazing. Good answers, Alex. Thank you. I feel slightly depressing answers, but yeah. <laughs> uh, the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses then, Alex. Starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I'd say, listen more and buy shares in Apple. <laughs> We've had Bitcoin, not Apple before. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Apple's probably a little bit more stable, I'd say. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Right, I would banish, without hesitation, people without passion and people without humour. Like, seriously, jog on, make someone in else's industry mediocre and tedious. We just do not want that. <laughs> Where we Brilliant. Brilliant. That's not come up before. I love it. Uh, number three, then, aside from the uh, the two we threw at you in the quick fires, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, I got a, a couple uh, books. I'm a big reader. I have to like read a lot for my job. Um, I read a lot. Full stop. So I think you know I've talked a bit of you know around the edges about AI. There's a couple of um, things I think are worth reading. One is I, I'm going to go quite kind of way back, kind of foundational stuff. So there's a, a 1920s play by a Czech writer called uh, Karol Čapek called R-U-R, which stands for Rossum's Universal Robots, which is a story of a factory that makes artificial humans. It's the first use of the word robot in the English language. The robots become self-aware and they rise up. And it's, it's surprisingly funny. But the ending is also 
So like, do you want a spoiler? Because the ending is like absolutely perfect. Go on then. Spoiler is basically the robots kill everyone and then go, what should we do? And they just keep building houses. And they don't know why. <laughs> Uh, sorry, you're a massive spoiler alert. Anyway, but I read R.U.I. It it's, it's like over 100 years old, but insanely prescient. Um, I would also have a look at, there's a book called The Human Use of Human Beings by a guy called Norbert Weiner, um, who's considered the father of cybernetics. He wrote it back in 1950. Um, so the tech is massively outdated, but the cybernetics was the study of human-to-machine communication, uh, machine-to-human communication, and machine-to-machine communication. Um, and Howard Gossage found him fascinating. Um, so I, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it, like the book is a little bit dense, if I'm totally honest, but it's it's really interesting because the guy, you know, so much of our life now is human to machine communication, machine to human, and increasingly machine to machine. I think it's very, very interesting to hear how the guy who uh, first conceived of this was thinking about it. And I think the title of the book, The Human Use of Human Beings, is just increasingly going to be a question we need to apply ourselves to answering. Yeah. And then linked to that, I'd say like any um, any of George Orwell's essays where he talks about work, I think are very timely at the moment, especially how he writes about the need for, you know, the human need for work as a purpose in life um, beyond just making money. And then, right, so that's a little bit of a techie thing. Um, then the two, two additional ones. One is, I know we mentioned at the start, um, Invisible Ink by Brian McDonald. I recommend this absolutely all the time. Um, it's just a very coherent, practical approach to narrative and structure, if you're into writing, copywriting, or even, to be honest, if you ever have to present or just write emails, this is good. Um, it's quite a short book, highly enjoyable, and he'll make you realize that It's a Wonderful Life is effectively the same story as Terminator. And then lastly, just purely for the creatives, um, Lynch on Lynch. It's a, it's a book, which I'm a big David Lynch fan. It's a series of interviews with David Lynch. I think he's a fascinating creative mind. Um, I think the third series of Twin Peaks is probably the most uncompromising, creatively pure piece of television I have ever seen. You could call it self-indulgent, but I think it, that man just put every frame of his um, vision up on screen. Amazing. Well, I'm, I think one of our past guests, Lee Grinnell, will be nodding along and smiling to that last one. Oh, good. Have you ever seen, I forgot the guy's name, um, sadly, but have you ever seen the guy who wrote the musical score to Twin Peaks? Oh, Angelo Badalamenti, yeah. That's it, yeah. Have you seen that short clip where he talks about, whilst playing the score, his original conversation, um, I, I assume with Mr. Lynch? Yes. Or he, whoever was involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a wrote a piano, I think it's an electric piano, and David Lynch is like, it's a forest and it's dark, and he's like, and he's just playing along, he's just making it up, and David Lynch is like, print it, that's it. That's the one, yeah. Uh, it's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. It makes me very happy to watch. I'll, I'll link to that. So, yeah, these are these are wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Any more? You're going to stop at five. Uh, I could, oh, it's, I could, I could keep going. I mean, everyone said good strategy, bad strategy. I would just, I would re-endorse that. Richard Rommel does have a new book called The Crux, which is also worth reading. Thank you, Alex. And then number four, we always dedicate every episode to someone, and we bestow or hospital pass that honor depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why? Um, I, I have not. Uh, tell you what, let's dedicate it to David Lynch. Um, I think if he ever finds out, I'd just like to see the puzzles look on his face. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's a wonderful dedication. This episode is very proudly dedicated to David Lynch. 
So as a, a final call to action, we will link to all of the books. So specifically, Are You Are, The Human Use of Human Beings. Great title. Any of George Orwell's essays, so we'll, we'll pluck a few out. Invisible Ink, Lynch on Lynch. And of course, the old favourite, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. There's, there's a reason it comes up time and time again, though. So if you yeah. haven't read it, please do familiarise yourself with it. Uh, we'll link to Contagious and uh, specifically Most Contagious, which happens on the 7th of December. How else can our listeners get more Alex Jenkins? To be honest, I am not uh, I'm like, I'm not here for the social media sightings. I'm on X, probably known as Twitter. I'm very much on receipt. If you want more of me, honestly, just drop me an email. We'll go to the pub. <laughs> nice. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, listen, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed this immensely. No, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. Hopefully it wasn't too rambly and unfocused. Not so. Not at all. Uh, finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or you can just email the mouthful that is call to action at gasp.agency. I can't get no call to action. I can't get no call to action. But I try, and I try, and I try, and I try